where we believe that nearly every issue that shows up in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanandan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So we're going to cut to the chase this week because we're betting that our listeners are feeling the same urgency we are around the issue of keeping immigrant families together and also resisting their mass incarceration and detention. So we're going to start by talking about where we are today, which, by the way, is Sunday, June 24th, um, as we're taping. This morning, Trump tweeted, quote, we cannot allow all of these people to invade our country. When somebody comes in, we must immediately, with no judges or court cases, bring them back from where they came. Our system is a mockery to good immigration policy and law and order. Most children come without parents, end quote. And finally, it's always good to, like, you know, you know, help law and order out by getting rid of judges in court cases. I mean, exactly. Right. So finally, we have something on which I agree with Donald Trump. Our system is a mockery to good immigration policy. That's it. Um, And he has made it much more that way by suggesting getting rid of courts and process. Um, We can like we can just dispense with them. Washington Post story from four days ago noted that the Trump administration changed its story 14 times before Trump issued and also confusing executive order seemingly reversing course on separating uh, families. Uh, but while Trump ended the, ended the policy of separating children arriving at the border from their parents, he wrongly and repeatedly blamed Democrats for the policy, claiming he couldn't do anything about it. And when he finally did, the executive order said children and parents could be detained together indefinitely, which we know isn't true. Now kids will stay with their parents and they can be locked up for who knows how long, an extension of the incarceration issues we've covered in our last two episodes. So today we're going to talk about how this issue of undocumented immigration and particularly unaccompanied migrant children has appeared in literature. We always say that the news has already been covered in literature, and both of our guests today prove this concept. Beginning with her 1994 novel Breath, Eyes, Memory, and over the course of her magisterial career, Edwige Dantica has written frequently about immigration and about the experience of being separated from one's parents. We'll talk to her in the second half of the show. But first, we're extremely happy to welcome the writer Cristina Enriquez. Cristina is the author of the novels The World in Half and The Book of Unknown Americans. Cristina, thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's really awesome to have you here. Um, when we were talking about this episode, our intern producer, Aaron Saxon, immediately thought of your story, hey, Everything Aaron. is Far From Here. Yeah, Aaron, who's been doing an awesome job. Which And the story appeared in The New Yorker about a year ago, and is from the point of view of an undocumented immigrant mother who has been separated from her son. It seems almost just prescient. And we would love to start the episode by asking you to read to us from the story. Sure. This is a story about a woman who has just arrived at a detention facility, um, and she has traveled from an unnamed country. She's an unnamed narrator also. And along the way during the journey, she lost touch with her son. Um, And so this is from her point of view in the detention facility, what she's seeing. Periodically, new people arrive, escorted by border patrol agents, a few every week. She watches them with their tattered backpacks, the children with stuffed animals in their arms, When the weather turns cold, people are wrapped in foil blankets as they trudge up the walk. Did you see a little boy, she asks every new arrival, a boy who looks like me? The people glance at her with weary, red-rimmed eyes. Some of them shake their heads, one after the other, none of them him. What if she's forgotten what he looks like? What if she's gone crazy? What if he's here, lying in one of those cribs, and she sees him every single day without realizing he's her son? 
What if it's been too long? What if memory fails? What if everything fails and getting through life is simply learning to cope with the failure? No, she scolds herself. Don't think like that. Don't let yourself give way. Christina, thank you so much. It's such a searing story. And I remember when it came out, um, it just prompted a huge amount of discussion and emotional reaction online. And now what you wrote about has basically happened en masse, which I mean, I'm sure it was happening en masse before, but it became part of, um, I think, public discourse in a way that makes it really interesting and painful uh, to revisit the story now for me as a reader. What is it like for you? I mean, it's terrible (laughs) in the sense that I wish it wasn't a story. I wish there hadn't been things like this happening in the world to prompt me to write a story like that. Um, But there were. And when I wrote that story, which I did actually a year before it was eventually published, so about two years ago now, I didn't write it because I had some kind of premonition about how things were going to go in the country. I was writing it in response to the past, to things that had happened basically in like 2014, or at least they had come to a hilt in about 2014, um, and to the conditions even back then of family detention centers. And I remember researching it, looking at pictures of people under these flimsy foil blankets, for example, like it says in the excerpt I read, um, and the rows and rows of bunk beds where women were crammed all together. And it was just heartbreaking. Um, There were hunger strikes that I read about where people were protesting the conditions. And there was this problem, as I hear there is now, of people having medical complaints, um, things that need actual attention. And the guards were frequently telling them just to drink water. You know, go away, drink some water, that will make it better. But the water tasted like chlorine, from what I read. So it was basically undrinkable. And, you know, reading all of this, it was just maddening. And... Then, unlike now, there was hardly any media coverage of it. So subsequently, because most people didn't even know this was happening, there was kind of not a lot of outrage or as much as I thought there should be. Um, Why is that? Why do you think, particularly at the time, I mean, so you're reacting to events during the Obama administration, and we have talked on other episodes Uh, particularly episode nine of this podcast uh, about the, you know, the fact that the Democrats are not blameless in what's happening in terms of immigration policy. Um, and it, it's, it's kind of, do you think it's simply that people are more willing people, meaning people on the left, more willing to get upset, uh, about immigration policy when they can clearly blame Republicans for it? Um, I think that's part of it, although I will say that I think there are some very clear differences between what Obama was doing and what Trump is doing now. Um, In some ways, those things are similar in the sense that there were family detention centers under Obama. But partly, Obama was responding to, you know, a crisis in the sense that there were all of these unaccompanied minors who are coming to the United States, and he had to figure out what to do with them in a very short period of time. Trump, on the other hand, you know, as many people have pointed out, especially recently, that there's, you know, immigration from Mexico is basically at like a net zero. Um, So there's not really a crisis, except for one that's basically manufactured. And so essentially, Trump just wants to do something because he wants to do something. Um, which so there, I think is 
a little bit of a different situation. Also, then, obviously, the policy of separating families is a huge difference between how people were treated when they were apprehended at the border. Um, So those are, I think, partly because of those differences, it's made people more outraged. Um, But I do think, you know, it also feels, um, I think, partly like it's part of something, some bigger agenda with Trump. Um, and so that is making people feel rightly, I think, more frightened about what's happening. I think it's helpful for you to outline that difference between the, the fact that the issue, the, the primary crisis during Obama administration, as I understand it, was this unaccompanied minors who were arriving at the border, which is different than having people arrive, particularly asylum seekers with children and then separating right. the parents and children. That was not happening during that period of time under Obama. Is that correct to say? Right. That's correct. Yeah. And now when Trump separate was, you know, was separating these families, when the kids got separated, then they could be classified as unaccompanied minors, which is also like a weird um, thing that I think he probably made him feel more like he was on par with what Obama was doing. And so why is everyone so outraged? I just don't think he gets it at all. We're presented with this savior narrative. Um, and you I mean, think on that Trump's the case, part? Yeah, on Trump's part. Like I he's going to fix the, this thing that he caused? Yes, exactly. I mean, it, that's the narrative that was presented, like these momentous <laughs> ceremonial signings of executive orders where he saves us. One, you know, one man is here to save us. Well, the problem and is we don't, that, that executive order is not even going to work. I mean, exactly. Uh, you know, because the problem is that, as I understand it, that there's a 1997 court case. Yeah, the uh, Flores case. Right. The Flores case, which makes it so that it's illegal to hold children in detention. Uh, after a certain right. amount of time. Over 20 days, I think okay. it is. You can't, yeah. Right. So that's not going to fix it. And then there's two GOP bills. One went down, a conservative bill, last week, and then they delayed voting on a more moderate one. Uh, it doesn't look like that. I, I mean, I guess what I'm leading to is, is to ask Christina, you know, um, now that all this attention has come, the kind of attention that wasn't coming to this issue when you wrote the story, has it done anything good or has it just made things worse? What do you think? Um, I mean, hopefully there's something good that comes out of it in the sense that people understand that we need long-term solutions. I mean, the problem partly for me, I, you know, I have many, many problems with this administration, but one of them to me is that they're always seeming to think in the very, very short term um, and just sort of, you know, making ragtag solutions to things as they go along. But none of this, you know, as we were just talking, you know, the Flores settlement, 20 days, this is what's going to happen. There's an executive order, this, this, this. None of that addresses the very underlying, very fundamental, you know, issues in our country about immigration and attitudes toward immigrants. And I think unless you get enough people thinking about it in those kind of Sort of broader terms, all of this is going to be, I don't know, hopefully not for not, but I think that's where we kind of need to go if there's going to be a bigger change. Your 2014 novel, The Book of Unknown Americans, which I think, you know, has this, it has this ensemble cast of immigrants and it also has this uh, incredible opening that I think gets at the broader conversation about immigration that you're talking about. Like there's the history, um, I mean, just sort of people's fundamental reasons for crossing that border. And I wonder if you would set up the book a bit for us and read from that amazing opening. 
Sure. Um, so this is a novel that follows two families in particular, one family who has been in the United States for a while. They had come from Panama and more recent arrivals, the Rivera family who have come from Mexico to Delaware to get their daughter, um, Maddie Bell, some education opportunities that she wouldn't have in Mexico. Maribel has suffered a traumatic brain injury the year before, so they have to go to the special school and they come um, to be able to send her to that school. So the beginning of the book, it's told in various points of view all throughout the novel, um, but the beginning is narrated by Alma, who is Maribel's mother, um, and this is just upon their arrival in Delaware. Back then, all we wanted was the simplest things, to eat good food, to sleep at night, to smile, to laugh, to be well. We felt it was our right, as much as it was anyone's, to have those things. Of course, when I think about it now, I see that I was naive. I was blinded by the swell of hope and the promise of possibility. I assumed that everything that would go wrong in our lives already had. Thirty hours after crossing the border, we arrived, the three of us in the backseat of a red pickup truck that smelled of cigarette smoke and gasoline. Wake up, I whispered, nudging Maribel as the driver turned into a parking lot. Hmm? We're here, Iha. Where? Maribel asked. Delaware. She blinked at me in the dark. Arturo was sitting on the other side of us. Is she okay? He asked. Don't worry, I said. She's fine. It was just after sunset and darkness bled in from the outer reaches of the sky. A few minutes earlier, we'd been on a busy road driving through four-way intersections, past strip malls and fast food restaurants. But as we neared the apartment building, all of that had given way. The last thing I saw before we turned onto the long gravel lane that led to the parking lot was an abandoned auto body shop, its hand-painted sign on the ground propped up against the gray stucco facade. The driver parked the truck and lit another cigarette. He'd been smoking the whole trip. It gave him something to do with his mouth, I guess, since he'd made it clear from the moment he picked us up in Laredo that he wasn't interested in conversation. Arturo climbed out first, straightened his hat, and surveyed the building. Two stories, made of cinder blocks and cement. An outdoor walkway that ran the length of the second floor with metal staircases at either end. Pieces of broken styrofoam in the grass. A chain-link fence along the perimeter of the lot. Cracks in the asphalt. I had expected it to be nicer. Something with white shutters and red bricks. Something with manicured shrubs and flower boxes in the windows. The way American houses looked in movies. This was the only option Arturo's new job had given us, though, and I told myself we were lucky to have it. Silently, in the dim and unfamiliar air, we unloaded our things. Plastic trash bags packed with clothes and sheets and towels, cardboard boxes filled with dishes wrapped in newspaper, a cooler crammed with bars of soap, bottles of water, cooking oil, and shampoo. During the drive, we had passed a television set on the curb, and when he saw it, the driver braked hard and backed up. You want it? he asked us. Arturo and I looked at each other in confusion. The television? Arturo asked. The driver said, you want it? Take it. Arturo said, it's not stealing? The driver snorted. People throw away everything in the United States, even things that are still perfectly good. 
you came to the University of Minnesota, which was such a treat for um, me and for our students here. And I remember reading that those opening lines and I mean, reading them now, it, I'm just sort of still floored. You know, we felt it was our right as much as it was anyone's to have those things. That's so at the heart of this debate, mm-hmm. you know, the question of this language that Trump is using of invasion as opposed to yeah. just kind of what people are entitled to. And then also the sense that, you know, that line, I assume that everything that would go wrong in our lives already had this, this sort of a historical view that Americans sometimes have the way that that's entrenched in this conversation about the pursuit of individual happiness. Well, how are we responsible as we pursue our individual happiness for collective history, you know, for the history of what, you know, the United States has done in other countries, um, what people might be leaving behind, um, what they might be seeking here. And I just, I mean, I find that opening paragraph to be just crushingly good. Thank you. Um, and so, Thank you. so connected to the politics of this and the humanity of it, which is also, I think like people right. talk about politics and humanity, like they're separate and they're not at all. Right. I, well, they're the, exactly the same thing. Politics is basically deciding who has humanity and who doesn't. Right. Yeah. It's like that's sort of what it is. Um, and so I think you're right that 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 line of like we felt it was our right as much as it was anyone's. You know, I think that kind of, you know, that goes to this issue that right now, like you said, about the words that Trump is using, like infestation or like the word animals, you know, which he originally says, oh, it's ju- I'm just talking about MS-13, which I wanted to say, I also actually don't think you should refer to gang members as animals. You know, I mean, I don't I don't yeah. I don't think we need we don't have to say that they're good people, but I think we should acknowledge that they are, in fact, people. And I think to not do so affords us some measure of distance. Um, and I know that that's what certain people want, but I think that that distance lets us off the hook. Ultimately, you know, it's not our problem without forcing us to take a good look at how this happened, why these gangs exist and the importance of doing that, of course, is that we can understand what to do about them now and how to keep them from growing. But the answer, I feel absolutely certain, is not just to call them animals and deport them and wash our hands of it and think it's done. Um, you know, history, as you pointed out, should not should tell us that it's not done. You cannot think of a country as a container that once you weed out everything you don't want is now going to be totally stable for the rest of time. Um, you know, the ebb and flow of history doesn't work like that. The container is porous. That's the fantasy of the wall, though, too, right? That it will somehow be this, like, airtight seal. But it's just not how it works. And in particular with a country like the United States, it is not how it works. Well, also, I feel like you you mentioned earlier that you thought that, you know, the administration was looking sort of short-term in in their solutions. But I actually think that there is a larger, very deliberate uh, end game here, which is to change... Um, to change certain rules that have been enshrined in our legal immigration programs for a long time, to change the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, which was the original act that sort of enshrined the idea of family reunification as U.S. Mm-hmm. immigration policy, mm-hmm. and they also w- and, and wanting to change the diversity lottery program, which comes from the Immigration mm-hmm. Act of 1990. That change, getting rid of that, is, is was in the moderate uh, Republican bill that uh, was deferred on Friday. And I think the goal there, to me, and I, I believe Stephen Miller thinks and talks about this all the time inside the White House, is is to end th- those two acts had a lot to do with uh, allowing more immigration from non-European countries, 
um, into America and changing and, and diversifying the way that we allow legal immigration. And I think the administration wants to end that. And I think that it is trying to create these crises in order to propose bills that then will have these changes that they really want in them. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you're right. I think when I said short term, I guess what I meant is like, maybe I don't mean short term, maybe I mean self-serving. Okay, that'll (laughs) buy. You know, like, like that they just want to do things that are going to make them feel better about now. Well, I think that's important because I think that what does frighten and has frightened and animated some of these immigration policies is the idea that, and the fact that um, demographically, the the whites are going to be a minority. And, you know, from my point of view, that's fine. But from their point of view, that's not okay. And one way to they're thinking like, okay, how do we change that? Well, one way is change the way we do legal immigration. It, not to mention, you know, trying to yeah. end uh, illegal I, immigration. I think that's been it's very. Their goals are incredibly transparent. Yes, you know, like mm-hmm. I do not think that they care at all if um, there are people from white majority countries or white people who come to the United States. I mean, there there have been like reports of um, like in NBC News and stuff about people from Russia who are coming here to have babies. And then, you know, like that kind of thing. Like there's have you ever heard anybody from the administration decrying that? No, it's really just about bigotry and racism. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Um, and I think that's incredibly clear. If you listen to them for more than a minute, I mean, you know, it's obvious. Right. And then you see these sort of um, this misuse or, or misinformation going forward about the kinds of crimes that immigrants commit or that immigrants are responsible for a huge chunk of crime, which is not Right. Like when that, report that, after report has shown that immigrants are actually um, commit many fewer crimes than native exactly. born people. Yeah. Yeah. And and, you know, that but, um, that they're more likely to commit sexual assault, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas actually um, there have also been reports which are not getting significant, not getting adequate attention at all from the administration or from governmental authorities about sexual abuse in some of the detention centers, the vulnerability specifically of women and children crossing the border, which was also something in your story um, that I thought was so important. And, you know, we're seeing like the Red Cross is saying that they don't have access to these detention centers. I mean, who is looking at these places and what's happening in them? And there's not any concern about that. And that also comes up in, uh, Shanti Sekaran's novel, who, which we talked about in an earlier episode, um, how did you think about portraying violence and gender in the in the New Yorker story that you read from? I think as a writer, you always want to be conscious, you know, that you're not playing into stereotypes, that you're not um, buying into popular tropes just because they're popular. But I guess for that particular issue, I just didn't see how you could write a story about a woman traveling with her son like that and not write about abuse at some level. Um, So it starts almost from like the first paragraph, I think. Um, There's this idea they're traveling with a coyote and he basically separates the women from the children. And she says something like, you know, that they did for him um, things that they were made to do. And the implication, of course, is um, they were sort of sexual abuse going on um, there. And then when he when she gets to the detention center, there's this part where there's another woman in the facility um, because the narrator has gotten her period. And she goes to this woman in the facility and asks for a tampon. 
And the woman says something to her like, you know, you're lucky you got your period. Many of us don't, you know, we get babies instead. Um, And I guess I was thinking about something that I had heard about how women were taking contraceptives before they would set off on these journeys um, just because they essentially knew that they were going to be raped along the way. Um, And it was a way to protect themselves, at least in some way. Um, And, you know, I think that acknowledgement that all those women know that, um, that they can and that many of them have been raped or used or abused. I mean, that's a horrific reality. But I felt, again, like it would be disingenuous not to include it in some way in the story. So uh, when I was in my in in my early years of college, I worked on a ranch in Colorado uh, with a couple of guys who were illegally in the states. But it was the summer that Reagan did his amnesty program, and so they got green cards right in the middle of the summer, as I remember it. I, I'd have to go back and check the dates. But you know, is that Reagan am, amnesty program? Is that a thing that would fix this problem? Is that what we do with uh, the 11 million or so people who are undocumented in the country, or is that is that not workable? I mean, I think it's, I think if you ask people on the right, you know, despite the fact that it was, I don't uh, care about the people on the right policy. Well, I know, but I think that they would say it was a a tragedy basically to grant amnesty in that way, unilaterally. Um, To me, I think we, you know, it might be part of a solution, but I think we have to come up with some kind of like deeper structural, not one time solutions to immigration as a general um, idea, because, you know, basically, if you grant people amnesty, then what are you just going to do that every, you know, so often when you have enough people here to grant amnesty again, it just sort of seems like you're pushing the ball up the field. Um, So what does that look like? I mean, that's what's complicated for me is that I have a good sense of what I am against, which is what is happening now. But I don't really know that I'm clear on what I should be for, you know, uh, or what I am for. Like, what is what is a good proposal for fixing the structural problems with immigration in the United States? Can you fix this, Christina? (laughs) (laughs) If only I could. There's a lot of consensus, actually, I think, among the American people and among politicians to some degree, um, about certain things that we that people feel like are the right things to do. Um, the thing that's holding everybody up is the extremists on the right. So what do you feel um, like those areas of consensus are though? Um, I think one is about the dreamers. I do think there's a deep amount of support in the country um, for kids who are brought here as children um, and, you know, who have grown up in this country and who, for all intents and purposes, the United States is their country. Yeah. Um, and I think there is a broad amount of support um, for them. That, I think that's one place you start. Like the idea of sort of temporary amnesty seems very much in line in, in some ways with like Trump's seeming desire to run the nation on his whim, like, you know, to discard due process as he was tweeting, like, basically this morning when he feels like it. And I think instead to look for something that is like big systematic change. And there's a great Masha Gessen piece about, um, you know, is the left doing enough to just question the existence of borders, period? You know, the ways in which, I don't know, I think of, I mean, perhaps abortion (laughs) is one analogy, right, that um, in countries where, for example, like in, in in countries where abortion is flat out illegal, right, then it's not like abortion stops, it just becomes more dangerous. So I mean, in what ways, um, 
does actually making the border less restrictive um, open up options for people to feel like, you know, they can if they can travel between places more easily, um, right. if... Then it reduces that, the, the load on the United States. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it, perhaps, because right now, if you have an incredibly restrictive border policy and really harsh penalties for people who are trying to cross the border, then what you end up with, you know, even though that's not your intention for the people who are setting those policies, is you end up with people who come in and if they were, are able to get in, then they basically stay. I know for a fact that the people who set up those policies, that's not what they want, but that's what's happening now. So, Well, it's not easy, I, but I do think the Democratic Party is going to have to do, it's, it's their job to discover what they think the policy should be in an affirmative sense. I know, I mean, I know what I think. I think we need more immigration, and I think nobody ever talks about this as an economic this is just an economic argument for it. You know, the birth rate's not high enough in, the, in this country, and we have always relied on immigration to keep our population growing, which is what keeps our economy growing, period. End right. of story. It, it, it's a shame, it is, that the administration essentially does not look at people as potentially assets to the yes. country and that's only the thing, them the as Democratic Party. That's what I think the answer is. I just don't know why people are afraid to say that. And then yeah. I think that's a, that's the thing that the beginning of your novel also does beautifully, right? It sort of challenges this scarcity response, like this notion that, oh, there's a limited number of resources and there's not enough for everyone. And actually, you know, that that trip into Delaware and them stopping and picking up things that there there is enough, actually, right? Like there is enough. You just have to be thoughtful about um, community resources and, and thinking about how to bring people in and, and how to how to have a system that is welcoming. Right. Um, but there isn't actually a shortage. Like when there's sort of, right, this alarm over jobs, immigrants are going to come in and take all of our jobs. And right, this is a very, like a, I think I at least am now used to giving this response. Like actually, no, you know, immigrants are coming in and, and doing jobs, jobs that like we really need to get done. And, well, that, and not only that, but they're creating jobs in many right. ways and they're contributing to the economy. And there's a lot of myths about immigration, you know, like that people don't pay taxes, which is not true, even if you're undocumented. For I mean, there's different kinds of taxes, right? But if you buy something, you're paying sales tax. That's a con- contribution to the economy in a certain way. So there's just t- there's tons of myths about it that I think we have to dismantle, too, which is part of why I think, you know, it, it can feel sometimes like art is a luxury, you know, like I sit in my house and I hang out with imaginary people for a certain number of hours during the day. Um, but in the end, it really, really is. And I, I don't say this just as like a bias because I'm an author. This is what I do. But I think it really is about the stories that we agree to tell, the stories we agree to listen to, the stories that we agree have value. That's what shapes us as a culture. And if, you know, we get to the heart of those myths and we tell different stories, um, I think that that's part of the solution too. And that's why I say, I think partly it's incumbent upon us in some regards to like read the news and then get away from the news and sit and focus and think about, okay, what am I actually going to do? Um, you know, what do I actually think about things? And I think there's actually quite a bit that we can do. And I was, um, reading about this woman now, I can't remember where, I think maybe somewhere in the Midwest, I want to say, but I can't remember which state, um, who started like a lemonade stand to raise money, like with her kids, she was, her kids were like distressed about the news, um, of thinking about these other kids and what they were going through. And they thought, what can we do? And they started a lemonade stand in their community to raise money, to send to some of these organizations that are providing legal assistance and, 
um, stuff like that. And, you know, and then the idea spread and there were like 12 lemonade stands <laughs> all oh. around. And I was just like, like, that's an actionable thing that you can do. And I don't remember how much money they raised, but you know, it was somewhat significant and they sent it. Or I know like, um, Elizabeth McCracken, who, you know, yeah. we all know and love, um, did a thing where she was like, I will provide a manuscript consultation if you donate $25 to Rice's Texas. I'm sure our listeners want to know what reading recommendations for us you might have as we try to understand the news. Hunting Season by Mirta Ojito, um, which is about a an immigrant from Ecuador in Long Island who was targeted by a bunch of um, white youth who kind of were just looking for Latinos to harass. I think one of the most classic books on this, and honestly, one of the best nonfiction books I think I've ever read still to date, The Devil's Highway by Luis Urea, Tell Me How It Ends by mm-hmm. Valeria Luiselli, um, which everybody should be reading right now. It's a slim little book. It'll You can finish it in a day, and it will give you a completely different insight um, into what's happening with these kids specifically. There's a book called Maras um, about gang violence and security in Central America. That's like an edited anthology that came out from University of Texas Press. But if you really want to understand what's happening with MS-13 and Barrio 18 and our complicity in that and the sort of historical circular um, you know, roots of all of that stuff. That's a really, really great book to look for. And let's see, my last one, oh, is just an essay um, in Marilyn Robinson's essay collection, When I Was a Child, I Read Books. And this is not an essay necessarily about um, Latino immigration, but it's called Imagination and Community. And I think it's really about the idea of belonging and communities and who we keep out and who we let in. Um, That's really, really great. Christina, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And now we are very, very excited to welcome Edwige Dantica to the show. Edwige is the author of many books, including Breath, Eyes, Memory, which is an Oprah's Book Club selection, Crick Crack, a National Book Award finalist, The Dewbreaker, and Claire of the Sea of Light. Her nonfiction book, Brother, I'm Dying, won the 2008 National Book Critics Circle Award for Autobiography. Her most recent publication, The Art of Death, Writing the Final Story, is an account of her mother's death from cancer, as well as a consideration of how writers have handled death as a theme. Edwige, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Whitney and I are both big fans of your work, and we were thinking of you when it came to this topic because you actually, of course, were separated from your parents when they emigrated to the U.S. and you stayed behind in Haiti. And could you talk to our listeners about the circumstances surrounding that separation? Well, my um, father had uh, emigrated to New York when I was two. He was the first person in our immediate family to go. And then my mother joined him when I was four. And actually, um, one of my earliest childhood memories is of being separated from my mother. We, I didn't realize she was leaving without me. And at the airport, oh. you know, I, I grabbed my uh, her legs and, and, and they, I had to literally be peeled off her body. So oh. I, even though my parents, um, 
you know, separation from me was a very carefully planned situation. I was left in Haiti in the care of my aunt and uncle. My uncle was a minister. We we weren't uh, well off, which is part of the reason my parents uh, had left. There was also uh, a dictatorship uh, in Haiti at the time. But we were left with people who loved us and and were well taken care of. And they were, we, I, we spoke to our parents once a week on a regular phone call. So it was a difficult separation, but it's nothing like what we are hearing about now of children being torn from their parents at the border, which is, uh, which is absolutely, I mean, horrifying. Yeah. And of course, this is a theme that recurs in, in much of your work, including your very first book, Breath, Eyes, Memory. And we were wondering if you could read to us from that. Well, this is a very familiar story in many ways and among some of my circle of friends and people I know. And it's a story that, that it continues to happen of parents who yeah. have to choose often whether to stay with their children or to go, like my parents had to make that decision and, and make them a better life and then send later for them. So in Breath Eyes Memory, the mother um, makes that decision, which leads to her daughter not knowing very much about her, except through this picture that's in the house. So I only knew my mother from the picture on the night table by Tante Addie's pillow. She waved from inside the frame with a wide grin on her face and a large flower in her hair. She witnessed everything that went on in the Bougainvillea, each step, each stumble, each hug, each kiss. She saw us when we got up, when we went to sleep, when we laughed, when we got upset at each other. Her expression never changed. Her grin never went away. I sometimes saw my mother in my dreams. She would chase me through a field of wildflowers as tall as the sky. When she caught me, she would try to squeeze me into the small frame so I could be in the picture with her. I would scream and scream until my voice gave out. Then Tante Addie would come and save me from her grasp. I slipped the card in my pocket and got up to go inside. Tante Addie lowered her head and covered her face with her hands. Her fingers muffled her voice as she spoke. When I'm done feeling bad, I will come in and we will find a very nice envelope for your card for your mother. Maybe it will get to her after the fact, but she will welcome it because it will come directly from you. It is your card, I insisted. It is for a mother, a Mother's Day card for your mother. She motioned me away with a wave of her hand. When it is Aunt's Day, you can make me one. Will you let me read it to you? It is not for me to hear, my angel. It is for your mother. I put the card back in my pocket, plucked out the flower, and dropped it under my shoes. Across the road, the children were yelling each other's names, inviting passing friends to join them. They sat in a circle and shot the crackling leaves high above their heads. The leaves landed on their faces and clung to their hair. It was almost as though they were caught in a rain of daffodils. I continued to watch the children as Tante Addie prepared what she was bringing to the potluck. She put the last touches on a large tray of sweet potato pudding that filled the whole house with its molasses scent. As soon as the sunset lamps were lit all over our quarter, the smaller children sat playing marbles near whatever light they could find. The older boys huddled in small groups near the schoolyard fence as they chatted over their books. The girls formed circles around their grandmother's feet, learning to sew. Tante Addie had promised that in another year or so she would teach me how to sew. 
You should not stare, she said, as we passed a nearsighted old woman whispering mystical secrets of needles and thread to a little girl. The girl was squinting as her eyes dashed back and forth to keep up with the movements of her grandmother's old fingers. Can I start sewing soon, I asked Aunt Daddy. Soon as I have a little time, she said. She put her hand on my shoulder and bent down to kiss my cheek. Is something troubling you, I asked. Don't let my troubles upset you, she said. When I made the card, I thought it would make you happy. I did not mean to make you sad. You have never done anything to make me sad, she said. That is why this whole thing is going to be so hard. A cool evening breeze circled the dust around our feet. You should put on your blouse with the long sleeves, she said, so you don't catch cold. I wanted to ask her what was going to be so hard, but she pressed her fingers over my lips and pointed towards the house. She said, go, and I went. Oh, thank you. I mean, one of the things that's so amazing about that book in general and that, that passage, even that image of you having this dream of your mother trying to fit you into the picture you know, it's the complication of a separation like that. It's not just that you want to be back. It's that you might want to be with the people that you're with, or it's frightening to be with the person who's away. You know, that that's what I find so interesting and amazing about the way you've written about this subject. Well, it's something that obviously, you know, for, for my own personal reasons, has always been with me. But for example, you know, soon after that, Sophie realizes that she has to go to her mother in New York, which should be a happy ending after such a separation, but it's very complicated, um, which I think about when I think about these children, you know, because whether you want to be resentful or not, you still lose sort of your trust in the adults you trust most in your life. You feel maybe they could have done more to protect you. Now, when I became an adult, I realized the complication of this for my parents, like the the nuance of the difficult, you know, very heart-rendering choices they were making. But I think for a child, especially a child who's gone on such a painful journey with a parent, it's a very uh, hard thing uh, to think about. But I think of this story that I was told by someone after she read the book and came to something I was doing. She said she was about five when her mom left Haiti and they didn't tell her that she was leaving. I think that they were sparing her sort of a, a dramatic scene like I had. And so she was told that her mother was Lord Bordeaux. And in Creole, Lord Bordeaux could mean, you know, abroad, or it could mean that someone has died. Oh. And, in, and in her mind, you know, she carried this this notion of her mother being Lord Bordeaux. And one day, just like in this, they, she was told, oh, you got to go to your mother. And she was freaking out because she yeah. thought that meant she was going to die. And so it's very, you know, these types of things get so very complicated in a young child's mind. And so uh, that's also what I was trying to capture in that story all those, all those many years ago, about 25 years ago now, since it was published. Slate recently ran a story saying that New York's public hospitals had treated 12 children who'd been separated from their parents at the border, including one who was suicidal. And the same piece noted that there were 239 children being treated at Cayuga centers in East Harlem. You know, I mean, I look, I appreciate the work that these hospitals are doing. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about, you know, is that this description that you're talking about in Breath Eyes Memories, this is a subject matter that you've been writing about sort of for your whole life because you've returned to it, you know, later in Brother, I'm Dying. 
Um, and your work suggests that there's the emotional fallout from this kind of separation is far more complicated and long-lasting. doesn't feel like something that can be addressed by these kind of triage efforts, uh, no matter how, how well-meaning. I wonder what you thought about that. Well, one of the very big problems in immigration detention, whether it's for children or adults, first of all, it's uh, there are many places where it turns into a kind of business and they streamline the services, including medical services that are offered to people who are being detained. So it's uh, wonderful if there are children who are being uh, treated for apparent trauma, because some of them are going to be re-traumatized by being detained. And I've read things, you know, the ACLU with the University of Chicago Law School collected something like 30,000 documents from the immigration system in which they had detailed cases of children, you know, young girls being strip searched and having being forced to you know, spread their legs of of young boys being punched and tased while they're in detention. And so a lot of these children are being re-traumatized um, when they're in detention. And often, you know, medical care is, you know, especially for uh, mental issues is not the priority at these detention centers because they're trying to cut costs. And sometimes the children are in uh, detention facilities that are part of the, you know, the mass incarceration system, you know, the juvenile system in this country as well. Right. So a lot of these facilities are not even equipped to deal with the physical uh, traumas or, or needs of these children, much less their mental. And there are cases that are cited by a lawsuit in Virginia right now where the children are held down and are injected with, you know, psychotropic drugs or are being forced to, oh you know, to, to, to take these drugs. And these are in court filings of a case against the police in, in Virginia right now. So all this is has happened in the past. So you worry so much that these children are being put in the system. There's going to be so many of them that now they want to have uh, them on military bases. So how much care will they get? You know, so I, I feel like they're psychological care probably will fall way to the bottom of the list when they've already, a lot of them are, you know, running from gangs, you know, something like six out of 10 girls that said have been raped during the journey or have been threatened with rape. So they're traumatized and they're going to be re-traumatized. And I, I fear that these facilities are not even going to be equipped to deal with their physical, much less their psychological needs. You know, we did our past couple of episodes on mass incarceration and seeing the connections between those topics and this one. I mean, I think it's so much part of the same system, capitalism, you know, for-profit prisons, the militarization of our society, the sort of questions that I have about these children in these children have no advocates. They're not supposed to have to advocate for themselves, for their own care. They're not supposed to have to protect themselves. And people are saying that the sorts of authorities that would be monitoring these situations don't get access to them. So what is going on in these camps? A lot of people have raised a question of where are the girls, which which you were just talking about. So, I mean, I find myself deeply alarmed and also thinking about the fact that, I mean, these children are entering the already problematic prison system that we that we have. And I think a lot of people's eyes are being opened to the structures that are already in place. So I do think and hope that this will at least increase scrutiny of those situations. I was reading that there are going to be migrants housed at Camp Pendleton. I mean, speaking from somebody who's written about the military, as someone who's written a lot about the military and spent time on military bases, I cannot imagine how that's going to work. And I think to be perfectly honest, it's really hard for me to imagine the military agreeing to do this. I guess they would have to if ordered to, but there would be a tremendous amount of resistance within the military. 
Well, two points on that. It's been ironic for me to see like some people have used like the carceral state mass incarceration as justification for this separation of families. So you will hear people say, well, you know, the people who are in our prisons are separated from their children. Right. So they're like, you do something wrong, you get separated from your children as though mass incarceration is justified. You know, yeah, like you it's said, like mother, that system sucks right? as it is. Why don't we don't need yeah, to exactly. expand it? Like, <laughs> yeah, you send a, a, a mother to jail for a minor charge and she's separated from her child for her life. And then you use that you use like it's like using a massive and terrible wrong to justify this other series of inequalities that you're creating. And the second part about the military, Whitney, I wish I wish I could agree with you, but they will do it because they have done it before. There's a case, you know, in the 1980s, actually 1990s, when Haitian refugees or people were coming from Cuba in large numbers, they were detained on Guantanamo Bay, where right. Where we, you know, and and when they weren't allowing HIV positive uh, people from Haiti to come in, they, there was a hunger strike on Guantanamo Bay. They were out there in the intense and the heat, and so it's happened before. Right. And that's what sort of strikes. And we see those types of tents in the middle of Texas right now. So all they if they move them to a military base, they would feel like they would be cutting costs on like the guards and so forth. So I think the military will do it because they've done it before. I mean, the, the sight of children behind these, you know, behind the barbed wire with the guards watching um, might terrify us even more. But it will likely happen. I'm very sad to to say. You're right. The historical part about the military being involved in things like that is absolutely true. I guess what I was thinking of is that and perhaps this is a wan and vain hope. But, you know, there are a number of, of veteran writers and and there are a number of people in the military who are publicly left uh, and would speak out on this issue, but I mean, I change what the military does. So you're right. So I was wondering, I mean, as you mentioned already, you know, your circumstances were not exactly the same as the children who were in this situation. You were living with your aunt and uncle. Um, you weren't in a repurposed Walmart with a mural of Donald Trump on the wall. But, you know, when you read about what's been happening, how do you imagine what it feels like to be these children? And, and if you could talk to them, what would you say to the children who are going through this? Well, you know, I have uh, spoken to children like this before, not in these, you know, same circumstances, but when we had, you know, the mass influx of children and uh, 2014, I think, from Central America. And so I have many friends who are immigration lawyers. And you were so right when you said that these children are facing the system on their own. And so they don't have, unless they have volunteers, they're not entitled to legal representation. So uh, a child might be facing a judge, you know, all alone. And um, I have friends who volunteered at some of these uh, detention centers where children. So I would go and talk to them. And I would sometimes, you know, sit in on Know Your Rights presentations, which you have to do a Know Your Rights for a presentation for a child with a cartoon, because they don't they don't understand the complexity of what they're facing. And what I, you know, what I have said to them and what I would say to these children is hang on. I mean, it's really hard to fully know what how this will affect them. And based on sort of the level of trauma that they've experienced and the level of trauma that they'll, you know, some will continue to experience, we don't know how this will affect them. But all you can say is that 
hang on and you're not alone. And I, and I hope, I hope, I hope that that remains true, that once we stop seeing these images of children in cages, on concrete floors, on those blankets, once we start hearing the voices of children crying, we will still care because people have a tendency to move on rather quickly. Um, I think that's the power of literature is that sort of it lingers, as you said, you know, that there'll be veteran writers, there'll be citizen writers, there'll be people who will continue, you know, journalists will continue to follow this. I hope, I hope that we're not going to say, oh, it's all fine now while these children are living in the same conditions, the same things are happening, except out of sight. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, it's so hard. To, I'm trying to imagine, you know, 20 years from now, what will these kids' lives be like? I um, just Maybe thinking about have them. an incredibly powerful political leader. Right. Yes. Hopefully rise out of that and storytellers and yes. and people and humanity, you know, people yeah. who want to make change. But I also, you know, I want to also bring into this group of children, these other group of children we're going to have who will be separated from their parents. Um, the Trump administration has revoked temporary protected status for maybe so far maybe six out of the 10 countries that have received it, including Haiti, um, Nicaragua, El Salvador, some of the places these children are fleeing the violence from. And so there are about 330,000 people who could be deported starting next summer. And some of these people are parents of U.S. citizens' children. They're the DACA uh, people who are in limbo, but 800,000. And some of them are parents. And their children, they might have to choose now between whether they leave their children here uh, because they don't want to take them back to very dangerous situations or leave them, you know, as ward of the state or leave them with relatives. So those families are also going to be affected by the separation. So this is a huge problem that we might still be sorting out, you know, as you said, Guti, 20, 20 years from now. Yes, I think that I was just reading about a case, I want to say, in Michigan, um, where I used to live, where a mother was deported and um, took two of her three children, if I'm getting this correct. I'll see if I can dig up the link and post it on our on our show site. Um, and there was some incredible kind of just footage of the community seeing her and her the children who were leaving with her off, and she had to choose you know, they had to decide to go with her and she, she had to decide to take them with her. And then she, one child remained. And now that family is separated. And Whitney was pointing out, you know, in the other half of the show, like in family reunification has been a core principle of, of American immigration. And, you know, this is one of the major things that's, that's being eroded here. And, you know, also in an earlier episode, we spoke to Shanti Sakarin, who wrote the novel Lucky Boy, which is based on um, this story that's been recirculating online about Encarnacion Bail Romero, who's from Guatemala and who um, was detained in an immigration raid on a on a poultry processing factory where she was working, and she lost custody of her six month old son, and then he was adopted by or fostered by. Um, parents in Missouri and she lost her parental rights. Um, the, the argument was that she had abandoned her child. Um, but of course she was, I mean, she was detained. She didn't voluntarily, um, you know, abandon her child. And she, she lost a court battle that went, I think for many years, uh, I think it was resolved in either 2012 or 2014, but it, she lost a court battle to regain her parental rights. I mean, how many versions of this are we going to see? So there are also all of these complicated things going on. I've seen people sort of online thinking that they're, they're being very generous in perhaps their instincts. How can I take care of one of children? 
right? You know, can I foster? Or, you know, I would like to go and demonstrate where these children are detained. And some activists are raising, I think, really important questions about, you know, how do we show the children perhaps that there are people who support them and people who are there, but without also participating in their re-traumatization? Yeah. I mean, can you hear the the echoes? When I hear these stories, you hear the echoes of history and, you know, what's happened in the past, the fate of Native American children who are taken from their families, supposedly for their own good, and, you know, African-American children who are sold to the highest bidder. I mean, it's, you know, we risk repeating some really atrocious moments in history with the children if this, you know, if this doesn't get corrected. Because I think even as we have all this sympathy, the, the other feeling also people might be having is that, you know, these people, they they don't love their children as much because they put them at risk and they deserve to have them be with better, quote unquote, better people. So that's the, you know, that's the slope we're also sliding down. And this, you know, even as this flood of, of empathy uh, is also surrounding these children. Well, I also just want to bring it up. I brought this up in the, in the first half of our show with Christina, but you know, and I think it's really helpful that you brought up the temporary protected status uh, revocations that are happening because those feel to me very much connected to what I think is a right wing desire to reform and change the not reform to change the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act and the terms of the diversity lottery, which is part of the Immigration Act of 1990. And I think that this is a deliberate effort by voices like Stephen Miller to change legal immigration. I mean, I think that's the end goal, to make legal immigration more white. Um, and, and there's a really interesting column in uh, the New York Times today called White Extinction Anxiety by Charles Blow, uh, which I would encourage people to read, which I think is basically uh, right on target uh, in terms of looking at that as being the end motivating factor behind this. And they can't, I think the administration knows that this is what they want to do, and they have a real hard time getting to where they think they can say it out loud clearly. And so that, in part, explains why, as we mentioned earlier in the show, the Washington Post has counted 14 different explanations for the policy, right? Because there's a fragmentation that's necessary when you can't actually admit what you're doing. Well, I think they've admitted what they're doing, especially the president. When, for example, he says, oh, we don't want people from shithole countries. Why can't we have more people from Norway? I think that's as it I mean, he's working his way up to just being able to say, as there was a billboard posted in Tennessee this week, it was a, a guy who was running for state office that just said, make America white again. That was where he finally got to that slogan. I mean, that's really where he's trying to get to. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, they're they're sending us very clear signals. Yeah. You know, the the first lady's jacket, the Norway, the you know, I mean. I don't think it's coded anymore. And right. I think these, you know, and actions, as they say, speak louder than words. And the words have been pretty harsh with the language of infestation. Today I heard someone call, you know, an invasion, a plague. You know, I think, you know, we are, we're writers. We know that words matter and words can wound that certainly, but the, but even the actions, you know, the separation of these families, these mass trials that people who are who tried to go to the official entry to follow international mandates and request asylum, who are turned back and then go to the unofficial places and then are arrested and have these mass trials and have their children taken away from them. You know, 
I mean, the words are pretty harsh, but the the actions speak so much louder and so much more brutally. They've they've been since day one of this administration. So we've been talking a lot about the children. Uh, we haven't talked as much about the situations of that adults face, and I would love to talk about your uncle's situation and um, what happened to him in terms of immigration. And if you could read a little bit from that section of Brother, I'm Dying, uh, which I think really gets at also the ways that you know our sympathy is centering on these children. And I, and I can understand why, but there's sort of, I think, the pressing issue of also how it affects families as a whole, how it affects adults who are losing the children that they love or people who are parts of the system in different ways. In this scene, uh, your uncle is joined is, is with a lawyer named John Pratt, a female asylum officer you identify as Castro, a medic and your uncle's son, Maxo. So at this point, my uncle, after coming from Haiti, uh, was detained. His medication was taken away, and he had what's called a a credible fear hearing at the detention center where he was with uh, a lawyer friend, John Pratt. Pratt told the medic and nurse that right before he became sick, my uncle had told him his medication had been taken away. Pratt then turned to Officer Castro and asked if my uncle could be granted humanitarian parole, given his age and condition. I think he's faking, the medic said, cutting Pratt off. To prove his point, the medic grabbed my uncle's head and moved it up and down. It was rigid rather than lamp, he said. Besides, my uncle would open his eyes now and then and seem to be looking at him. You can't fake vomit, Pratt shot back. This man is very sick and his medications shouldn't have been taken away from him. The medications were indeed taken away, replied the medic, in accordance with the facility's regulations and others were substituted for them. The medic and the nurse then moved my uncle from the asylum office to a wheelchair in the hallway. When Maxo arrived, he ran over to his father and seeing him slumped over in the wheelchair and leaning over the side began to cry. Except for the occasional flutter of his eyelids, it seemed to Maxo that his father was unconscious. The first thing Maxo wanted to do was clean the vomit from his face. Though his father was in distress, he knew that underneath a sticky heave and chunks of still undigested food, this very proud man would feel humiliated by his appearance. He wouldn't be like this if you hadn't taken away his medication, Maxo said, sobbing. He's faking, repeated the medic. He keeps looking at me. The medic then turned to Pratt and told him that based on his many years of experience at Chrome, he could easily make such determinations. Please just let me clean him, Maxo sobbed. The medic told him that he'd been called only to help his father communicate with them. If you can't help, then we'll send you back. He can't speak without his voice box, Maxo said. Covenant vomit, the voice box was no longer operable. During that discussion, it seemed to Maxo that his father's eyes were fluttering a bit more. Maybe he could hear them. Maybe he was getting better, coming out of whatever had overcome him. Papa, Maxo pleaded, please try to move. Maybe they'll let you go. My uncle opened his eyes and looked up at Maxo. He raised his hands from his lap, but they fell limply back to his knees. It seemed to Maxo that he was trying to mouth, Mbakapab, I can't. My uncle's eyes remained open but they seemed cloudy and dazed, set on something way beyond Maxo, the guards, the medic, John Pratt, and all the others around him. He's not cooperating, the medic said. 
For a moment, Maxo wasn't sure whether the medic was talking about him or his father. His eyes are open and he's not unconscious, added the medic. I still think he's faking, but we'll take him to the clinic. A stretcher was brought and my uncle placed on it. Pratt asked Officer Castro if they could continue the credible fear interview at the clinic. No, he was told. That was against the rules. Thank you. I mean, that is such an absolutely horrific passage. I'm so sorry that that happened. Well, thank you. But it's, I mean, it's, I am sad to say, you know, there have been so many cases of similarly to my uncle's since the the years that happened to him that it's, it's sad to say, but it's a rather common occurrence with yes. neglect and lack of medical care in these detention, um, these immigration detention places. We should say that your uncle dies. Um, and I should yeah. also mention that the voice box that you mentioned is because he'd had throat cancer and that was his way of uh, communicating. Yeah, and, and he died uh, right after this uh, this incident happened. They waited uh, quite a while, but finally took him to the uh, prison ward of the local hospital. And he wasn't seen by a doctor for 24 hours and he uh, proceeded to die uh, chained to a hospital bed in that prison ward. Per regulations, because you have to be chained to the hospital bed if you're in that ward. <laughs> I mean, I think this is what concerns me and why I find your work to be so important, is that the outrage that's happening now over these children should have been going on for all of these years, not just now. Yeah, I, I just think people don't know. You know, they're not aware. And I have been involved in immigration issues most of my life. My parents, you know, when I got to New York, used to take us with members of our church to visit people who were detained at the Brooklyn Navy Yard when I was 14. So I I thought I knew. And even for me, going through that maze of issues with my uncle, it was, it was just eye-opening. And so I just think a lot of people don't know um, and that's why we've had this, you know, such a strong reaction to to what we've been seeing this week, because a lot of people just weren't aware that it that it can get so bad. Let me just add my sympathies to what Whitney said. I think that, you know, I you. have also. Yeah, I mean, I think that. I write mostly about Sri Lanka and often about internal displacement and internally displaced persons and and spent some time a while ago studying internment camps in Sri Lanka and also just sort of tracking the effects of sort of displacement and eviction um, on on civilian populations and inevitably, right? I mean, it's like the flu, the impact on the elderly and children. I mean, thinking about your uncle in his 80s and, and his he had a reasonable claim for asylum, asylum and he had a visa and he could have entered the country. And I think that this is another sort of population that people are not really thinking about. When people are thinking about family reunification, like often they're thinking about their, they're thinking about elders. Um, and it seems like that impact is also sort of lost. Yes, and I think, you know, part of the hyper-vulnerability of both, you know, elderly and children and, you know, women and people with disabilities and, you know, all the, the, the layers of vulnerability that people have in immigration detention, a great part of it is their invisibility, right? Is that 
you are locked up. You know, it's rare that reporters are even allowed to visit. And so you're just, you're beyond being in the shadows. You're just erased. Um, and so that's that's what I think. And, and we're going to see, you know, whether uh, internal or these external displacement, I feel like we're, we're going to see more and more of that. Apparently, there's something like 65 million people, the, the UN, it's probably increased, you know, who are just displaced right now. So we're going to see more and more of that. And uh, what this moment, what I hope we learned from this moment is that we can't say we don't know anymore, right? Um, people have seen what's going on, and there are probably worse things going on, but at least we've seen this horror, and we can't say we don't know about it. Yeah. Edwige, I want to thank you for being on the show and for being a person who's devoted their career to making this kind of invisibility visible. We would encourage everyone to go back and look at all of your work, but especially to go get a copy of your most recent nonfiction book, The Art of Death, which was published last July. Thank you both for having me. Thank you so much, Edwige. And that's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. Our intern producers are the terrific Kevin Coder and Aaron Saxon. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction backslash non backslash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find our previous episodes and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the news tab. We'll post a link to readings we referenced this week on our LitHub show page, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Twitter at FNF Talk. We hope our listening community had a great weekend last week.